another episode of Two Guys and a Chainsaw. I'm Todd. I'm Craig. And today we watched a film called Excision. Excision, as opposed to Incision. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Craig, this film was your idea. You'd heard of it. Um, What's the story? Yeah, I know. When we do our extensive research to figure out (laughs) what movie we're going to watch each week... Um, yeah, we put know. a lot of thought into this, don't we? <laughs> <laughs> I was just, uh, it's our 20th episode, so I wanted to do something different, and so I just kind of, I think I Google searched horror movie lists or something along those lines, and this uh, popped up on several lists of movies you probably haven't seen and should. I had kind of heard about it. I remember, I mean, it came out in like 2012, so it's been a while. Yeah. I remember hearing about it when they were making it, but I, other than that, I really knew nothing about it. But uh, when I mentioned it to you, you kind of took a look at the cast list. Oh my gosh, yeah. I'd never heard of it at all. And yeah, I looked at the cast list and I'm like, okay, you got Tracy Lords, Ray Weiss, Malcolm McDowell, um, my good buddy J- Bill Obers mm-hmm. Jr. And, and I pretty much stopped there and said, well, we got to see this. What a cast. Yeah, the cast is amazing. Like everybody, <laughs> I, I swear, pretty much every cast member in this film is recognizable from something. Yeah. Um, and it's not to say necessarily that they're all A-list actors, but these are all working actors who you're going to recognize from other pictures. And I'm sure as we talk about them, we'll kind of mention some of those things. But Annalyn McCord uh, is the main girl. Uh, she plays Pauline. She kind of rose to fame with the 90210 reboot. She mm. was kind of the vixen there. And so here, she's really kind of playing against character. In In real life, she's very beautiful, sexy, glamorous. Uh, and in this film, she plays uh, a homely yeah. weirdo. <laughs> yeah, who's like, doesn't, it seems like doesn't even have makeup on half right. the time. Uh, pimple-faced, uh, very, very... Mousy hair. Total uh, misfit adolescent, right. really. Uh, misunderstood, the kind of girl who just uh, can't really seem to get through to anybody, doesn't really care to let anybody in. Seems to be off in her own little world most of the time right. with these sort of bizarre, weird fantasies. It, it's almost strange to believe that she's grown up in this household with her sister being almost the polar opposite of her. Right. You've got She's got a little sister played by Ariel Winter who is still on Modern Family and doing very well. And she lives in, you know, upper middle class suburbia, it appears. You know, very nice home. The mother, Tracy Lord, uh, is, you know, trying to make them the picture-perfect family. Mm-hmm. Um, very concerned about that. And Pauline just doesn't fit in. She's weird. She's a weird girl. Yeah. And, and I thought that... Annalyn McCord, you know, I don't know much about her. I, I saw maybe an episode of 90210, and she played very stereotypical bitch, you know, nothing nothing special. I thought she did a good job here of playing weird, but also pretty believable, especially yeah. in the beginning. Now, she's definitely got weird quirks. The movie opens up with a dream sequence, and we get these dream sequences throughout, and they're super, super stylized. They look almost like a music video. Yeah. With like, really bright colors, really striking images. And she has these fantasies, and we open with one of them, that are both morbid and bloody and gross and also hypersexualized. Yeah. Like, like she gets off on, on mutilation and blood and stuff, and we're introduced to that right from the very beginning. So right from the very beginning, we know that there's something weird going on in her mind, but beyond that, she kind of plays your typical, I don't know... Not your typical teenager, but that type of teenager. You know, yeah. the, the kind of loner. She doesn't really fit in anywhere. She's different. She has trouble making friends. And and as far as that 
portrayal was concerned, I thought she did a really good job. Yeah, she did. And, you know, you could almost take out those gory interludes, and this would play like an angsty teenager comedy, yeah. like a, like an updated John Hughes kind of movie. Right. Right. Uh, darker, obviously. I mean, the, the yeah. comedy is dark, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of a, just your typical tale of, of uh, an outcast who is different and doesn't fit in, in her family, in school, wherever. Yeah. She doesn't seem to have any friends. Um, you, you're never introduced to anybody who could possibly be her friend. Uh, she's at it alone. Her sister is really the only one she seems to have a bond with. Right. And uh, her dad, played by um, Roger Bart. Yeah, Roger Bart, who it took me a long time, but I, I did finally figure out he, um, what I remember him most from is uh, Hostel 2. He mm. was one of the main villains. He was kind of this average guy who, if you've watched the Hostel things, they pay, you know, to be able to torture people and stuff, and he's kind of conflicted about it, but then at the end, he ends up being one of the most brutal. Uh, he was also on Desperate Housewives, but again, just so recognizable oh, yeah. all of them. And he seems a little bit... Uh, what's the word? Detached, maybe? Yeah, detached. A maybe, a little aloof. Bit, maybe a little bit beaten down. Yeah. His wife is very controlling, you know, she... And, and not particularly affectionate. No, not at no. all. His wife, uh, played by Tracy Lords, as you mentioned, her name is Phyllis. Mm-hmm. And uh, Phyllis, through this whole film, is is just, you can't like her at all. She's, again, that sort of stereotypical, overbearing mother. Everything's about her, everything revolves around her, and she's going to sit around and have something to say about every member of the family. Most of it's criticism. Right. And most of it's directed towards Pauline. Right. Chew with your mouth closed. Really, Pauline, I raised you better than that. Yes, you may be excused. It's hard to imagine this guy just sitting there through the whole thing, except that he's lived through so many years of marriage uh, that this is just the way he is. There's an odd scene between the two of them. Well, there are a lot of odd scenes in this movie, and... I guess the one thing that struck me about this movie is that it's a movie of, like, pastiches. It's just separate scenes that begin and end and are almost disconnected from each other. There's not a comfortable flow right, from in narrative from one to the other. Um, and we'll talk about it more later, but I almost got this feeling that I was watching a, a Wes Anderson movie uh, in a way, but kind of crossed with um, Paul Thomas Anderson, too. Hey, what does he do? I... He, he did, like, uh, Boogie Nights, oh, um, right. Magnolia, those movies. Right. It's like it's trying to be somewhere in between those two. You know, you get these shots where, and it's a very widescreen, mm-hmm. and, shoot, most of the movie's dialogue. There's right. very little action actually happening. Except for the fantasy sequences, and there's not a lot of dialogue there. And and it's those sequences are, are so different in style. I mean, there's a direct contrast. You're the cinematography guy, but I, I found myself being really intrigued, not only by that really stylized stuff, but just the cinematography in general. There was a lot of really neat framing, mm-hmm. um, especially with, uh, you know, shots on individual characters. They're framed right in the middle of this wide, wide screen. And like the mom, there are many scenes at the dinner table, family dinner. And every time um, it's focused on her again, she's right in the middle of the screen and the wall behind her is just kind of this stark gray. Mm-hmm. So it just set, I mean, it's almost like a portrait. Yeah. Um, and it really highlights her personality, just really austere and 
clean, I guess. Yeah, it really sets her apart from everybody else on the table. Everyone's got a little background behind them, and uh, looks like they're in a living room, and she looks like she's sitting down for a photographer. Right, and right. It, it does. It suits her personality really well. And every scene's kind of like that, where when people are talking to each other, they're planted in place. They're not moving, really, or taking any action, and it's a close-up on one person's head, and a close-up on another person's head, to the point where it almost looks like they're talking at the camera half yeah. the time, uh-huh. instead of each other. And it also makes for these very unnatural sort of scenes, unnatural sorts of framing, where suddenly we jump in and we're in the middle of a scene, and two people are just standing in front of each other, and they're in the middle of a conversation, I guess, but there's enough pause that it seems like the conversation is just starting up when you get there. Almost like uh, each scene has been put on pause, and then when we come to it, somebody's unpausing it for right. us, and we're going on, and then we hit pause again, which is a lot like kind of the Wes Anderson movies. You know, they try to be very understated mm-hmm. and framed up like a diorama of yeah, sorts. Yeah. Except that what he does is he really, like, literally create, uh, creates it almost a diorama around people where the background is interesting and it's a pretty picture right there this has that feeling with with none of the visual right you know it's more sparse i mean there's less going on and it's interesting what you said about you know the conversations you focus on one person then it shifts the focus to the other and it seems almost like they're kind of communicating through the camera i think it really kind of highlights the disconnect between the family and the characters especially with pauline i mean she doesn't really have a connection with anybody there are some scenes several scenes where her mom tries to sit her down on the couch and kind of have a more intimate heart to heart with her but even in those scenes um uh, the mother will be turned in. They're sitting on a couch. The mother will be turned in facing Pauline, but Pauline is always facing straight out. They're, they're not facing one another. So there's even yeah. still the disconnect there. The only time that you really do kind of see connection um, is between Pauline and Grace, her sister. They interact on screen, and they do interact with eye contact and, and their you know yeah. physical connection. So you do get the sense that at least she does have this feeling for her sister, and that plays an important role later on down the line. That's right. There's, It's almost like everyone's talking at her. Right. Right? And they're not connecting at all. And you're right. The cinematography does a pretty good job of getting that across. As well does the dialogue. It's very sparse dialogue. It's Honestly, I felt almost a little artificial. I'm sure it was intended to be that way, but it's very to the point and direct in the way that people don't normally really talk to each other. Right. You know, we usually beat around the bush a little bit. We usually think about what we say. We usually stumble over our words or our sentences. We, The sort of natural dialogue that you see in most movies is not here at all. Yeah, there, you know, in real life and in other movies, there's a casualness to conversation. And here, everything seems so forced. Uh, just to communicate it all seems like a major effort for, mm-hmm. for everybody, especially anybody trying to communicate with Pauline. And she is aloof and, and kind of cut off. She's sarcastic and biting, um, you know, some some pretty typical teenage angsty stuff. But uh, it, it's it's an interesting kind of character study yeah. with the dynamics uh, of the family, especially the the words that come out of Pauline's mouth sometimes sound like comic book guy. Yeah, you know, <laughs> she's a very intellectual. She thinks a lot about things. She's obviously she thinks a lot about death. Like you said, it starts out with this fantasy that she's having of her sitting across from herself, basically, except mm-hmm. her other self is sort of convulsing and spitting blood mm-hmm. and this gross stuff. And it keeps coming back to those 
fantasies that she has. In the meantime, uh, her sister Grace has cystic fibrosis, mm-hmm. and uh, she's on a ventil. Well, I guess some kind I think of she's machine. taking breathing treatments. Breathing I, I, I treatments, think. you know, every now and then. So that comes up, and uh, she's going to therapy. Right. <laughs> now, the mom, the mom, what did you say the mom's name was? I can't remember. Phyllis. Phyllis. Yeah. Picks, picks Pauline up from school and says, we're, we're going to your appointment. I guess we better get going. We don't want to be late for your appointment. Could you please have the decency to take me to an actual psychiatrist? Your father and I are not made out of money. Reverend William is a very bright man. You're lucky to have him. He's doing you a real favor. So then she gets to her appointment and <laughs> awesome, awesome. The uh, it's John Waters. It's John Waters. It's like the the perfect and that's the comedy and the casting right here too. Like John Waters is the joke, you know. Yeah. Here's John Waters playing a priest, right? And he's just staring at her and he's got that look on his face, like I really don't know what to do with you, right? And, right. And she clearly doesn't want to be there either and sees through his facade he has nothing to he doesn't even make an effort really no. and that's like everybody in this film nobody really makes a real effort even the mother's arguably the only one making any kind of effort isn't really an effort it's uh again it's she's not trying to connect with her very well yeah it's it's like she's a problem that needs to be solved she's mm-hmm. she's a burden and now you know and and the same thing happens with uh, her teachers and and I work with teenagers so I know that it can be very difficult to put up with their crap <laughs> when <laughs> when they act like that but yeah i mean there's there's very little compassion you know it i don't know if she's necessarily intentionally crying out but this girl clearly has some issues that need to be resolved and and nobody really is so much concerned about her general well-being they're more concerned about appearances and fixing her and making her normal mm-hmm. um, the mom wants her to go to cotillion even though she's you know beyond the age it's 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 more for junior high kids but does anyone ever do that anymore is that you know, a real thing like <laughs> it still happens i think in some places probably a, a little bit wealthier places they they do still do cotillion. oh my gosh that's crazy <clears throat> <laughs> it is kind of crazy. I saw that and I thought, this is, is this just something the writer read about? Because, I mean, I know what it is and I've right. heard about it, and, and but I just didn't think that actually happened anymore. I have friends, well, see, now I'm 36, and so it's been a long time since I've been in high school, but I had cousins and friends and really? things who, who did uh, Cotillion. And for anyone who doesn't know what Cotillion is, it's almost like a charm school yeah. for guys and girls it teaches them how to dance and interact with each other right and manners and, and yeah. right exactly it's weird <laughs> it, it is weird you it's know a they bygone era right you know they get all dressed up in fancy suits and dresses and whatnot and they get together and it's kind of like a the nerdiest social <laughs> thing ever you do realize i'm too old for cotillion class mrs guthrie has decided to open her doors to a wider age range this year She's a dear friend and a dire need of assistance, so I've decided to take on a position as chaperone. You can't be serious. No daughter of mine is going off to college without knowing the ins and outs of what it's like to be a proper lady. I can't wait for Cotillion. And what do you have to say about all this? I think what your mother is trying to do is inst- Your mother? Excuse me. This was our decision. And your dad had nothing to do with it. You don't even have enough backbone to stand up for your own wife. You're repulsive. Make sure Grace takes her pills. 
Um, and obviously she doesn't fit in. No. <laughs> it's not something that she wants to do at all. And it's difficult uh, even to kind of talk about plot because really yeah. most of it is centered around her struggles. Now, some interesting parts. We've already talked about her dreams and she has dreams throughout and they're all very similar in nature. Um, dead bodies mutilated to various degrees. Oftentimes the dead bodies seem to still be animated. Like, mm-hmm. like they're not dead. They're just really grotesque. Um, they're all very sexual. She, you know, she's climbing onto dead bodies. She's surrounded by, um, both men and women in various stages of undress who are, you know, act behaving sexually with and around her. But there's always that gore element too you know she's she's bathing in blood she's wiping blood on her face she's she's uh dissecting you know sticking her hands into cut open corpses all the while clearly enjoying herself it cuts from those scenes to showing her in bed and again you can tell that she's sexually stimulated and it's 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 disturbing it is and it it's interesting this you know there's a book that is on her desk when she's talking. And one of the things she also talks about is how it's clearly like she wants to be a surgeon. Mm-hmm. You know, whether one begot the other, who knows? Right. But she's interested in surgery and she's interested in this medical stuff. And there's a book that's on her desk that constantly is kind of showing up called Human Sexuality. Uh, and then the subtitle is The Psychosexual Effects of Disease. Huh, I didn't see that. It's interesting because you're thinking disease as in she has a problem, you know, and this is kind of manifesting itself or disease because she's her sister has disease and this is kind of an obsession that she's trying to see if she can fix her sister in some way. Mm -hmm. And maybe that was what spurred her on to maybe be interested in surgery. And you, you kind of wonder if at some point growing up before we the events of this movie, her relationship with her sister has led her down this path. Maybe. And and maybe it's a they've led her down this path, this medical path, which then she's really gotten into and it's become the sexual thing for her, or if that was just always below the surface. Obviously never explained, but I think there's some depth there probably in character that um, is hinted at anyway uh, during the movie. Well, I think it we can only call it some kind of psychosis. I mean, mm-hmm. it's not normal. No. Um, and, and, you know, she's, she's fascinated with these things in their dream, in her dreams. I, and I don't know if I, if we've mentioned it yet, but in her dreams, it seems like she feels a sense of power and control. Mm. And, and not only do you see that through her aggressive action, but in her dreams, she's also very glamorous. Um, she's got, in real life, she's got this brown mousy hair. She's got, you know, uh, acne all over her face. She's got, throughout part of the movie, she's got a cold sore on her face. Her, her looks are really downplayed. And in these dreams, she's beautiful and glamorous with blonde, curly hair. And, and, uh, she's climbing all over the bodies, dominating them. She's, leading other women down the hallway right her but in her you know her she wears things that are flattering to her body so that you can see that she is actually a very attractive young woman but that doesn't translate into her real life which is something that i kept kind of thinking was strange you know mm-hmm. she's she's having these dreams where she's so beautiful and empowered in a sick way but you know she's not trying right to yeah fulfill them in any right significant way she's more interested in the blood and sort of the the death right almost uh it's interesting in the very beginning, obviously it kind of hits you with that, and then we get introduced to her family, and then the first event that really happens is she's talking about how she wants to lose her virginity. And she overhears a couple girls talking. It's the... The mean girls. The mean high school girls, right? Yeah. Uh, and one girl's talking about her boyfriend, and they're making comments about a schlong and stuff. And uh, his name is Adam. Mm-hmm. 
and she tells her sister that she's going to lose her virginity. I'm ready to lose my virginity. It's a common misconception that having intercourse during menstruation is unhealthy. When I lose my virginity, I want to be on my period. Girls, we're having early dinner. It just, and even her sister, it seems like her sister wants them to have a relationship. But when she says stuff like that, her sister just kind of gives her a side eye like, Doesn't you know. are so weird. <laughs> I don't know what to do with that information. <laughs> right. And so she approaches Adam with her phone number, just very matter of fact. Oh my God, like, it's hilarious. She's like, pardon me for being so upfront or so forward or something like that. And meanwhile, you know, he's sitting there with his bros. Like, you know, it's not like this is a private conversation. I want to lose my virginity to you. <laughs> I'm clean and I just put my allowances on birth control. So That's nice. <laughs> Adam. It's my number. Call me. You're on the top of my list. Thank you. I won't wait forever. And Adam is this young, cute kid. I, I recognized him, too, and I knew that he had been a child actor. I don't know what his name is, but he was in a uh, a live-action version of uh, Peter Pan. He played Peter Pan. Oh, yeah? Yeah, I know if you saw the, the jacket of the DVD, you'd recognize him. Okay. Again, just more recognizable people. So she gives him his number. He acts completely uninterested, of course. But later on, a couple days later, she gets a phone call. And uh, it's Adam, and she's very kind of curt with him, uh, but she says, pick me up at 11 o'clock on Monday. It's a teacher work day, and, and we'll do it. <laughs> yeah. And she just hangs right up while yeah. he's in the middle of talking. And yeah, it's a very awkward uh, scene. You know, there are a number of these kinds of scenes. Person loses their virginity for the first time in films, especially kids. It, they're always a little awkward. Mm -hmm. They're played pretty realistic in that way, and... She's more or less in control, telling him to just take his clothes off. Uh, there's some comedy in there where he's like, I stole this condom from my brother. And yeah. it's, it's for the big ones. And then she <laughs> looks and it's like, uh, you don't you don't need the big ones. But but that's okay. We're not going to use a condom anyway. Right. And, uh, you know, they're having sex. And in the meantime, she there it's flipping between them having sex and this alternate version in her mind of them having sex where she's bleeding all over him and blood's flying on the walls and she's smearing blood on her it's splashing on the bed i mean tons of blood there's so much blood in this mm. movie lots and lots of blood to the point where by the end it was really kind of getting to me a little bit <laughs> really yeah i was really yeah, kind of getting a little squeamish well and me. it's kind of presented in a in a gross clinical way it's those scenes that we're talking about, those dream sequences, as you said, they're in this bright room. They're almost like each one of them is in a hospital, right? It, well, it's yeah, it's it's sort of, bright white, kind of a sterile looking environment. Yeah, and if there's a wall, it's sort of a blue tiled wall. Mm -hmm. At one point, there's an abortion type scene, and there's a clearly a doctor character who takes this little baby thing away and puts it in an oven and yeah it's it's bizarre because after after they have sex and again it's it's totally awkward because she is menstruating yeah. and uh he doesn't notice that at first right he makes a comment that if you want to stick the clip in <laughs> I, 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 can't bring, I can't bring myself to say it oh, god you're fucking wet <laughs> thank you <laughs> 
<laughs> I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. Um, but then towards uh, the end of their romp, uh, she she asks him to perform oral sex, and he does, which is when he realizes what has been going on, and of course he freaks out. Um, and and takes her home and is not happy with her, but she got what she wanted out of the experience. Yeah. I think she's pretty pleased with herself, and she's pretty pleased at sort of sabotaging this girl's relationship with her boyfriend. Right, because Adam is is uh, Natalie, one of the mean girls' uh, boyfriend. Right. Yeah, and and then later on, there's a scene obviously in the locker room where she's confronted, and it's uh, well, she drops hints like uh, after it happens, she approaches that group, you know, Adam mm-hmm. and his friends and his girlfriend, and um, she says. I don't remember what she, she's told. Oh, what about. she does is she asks. Uh, she she gives herself this like what she calls an STD test in yeah. the middle of science class, where she's just looking at her own blood under a microscope, and she makes a comment to her friend, and then she goes out where Adam's talking with his girlfriend. Was it Natalie? You yeah, uh-huh. I'd watch out for Pauline if I were you. She gave herself an STD test in science class today. Everything was fine. She can never be too careful. Yeah. Oh, Natalie, I meant to ask you. Do you have any STDs? Absolutely not. Good, then neither do I. <laughs> it just kind of walks away. <clears throat> and so then, uh, apparently, you know, we don't see it on screen, but Natalie and her other mean girlfriend, Abigail, kind of corner her in the locker and are just kind of being general bullies, telling yeah. her she's ugly, that she looks like a boy. And, of course, she comes back with some really biting things like, yeah, well, your vagina looks like a bloody axe wound or something like that. <laughs> and she she always keeps her cool, you know, uh, and it's kind of sad that I, I don't know if she's controlling her emotion or if she's just kind of emotionless, but she always comes back with something kind of quippy. You know, she doesn't yeah. really play the victim. No. Um, so I, I guess uh, Natalie had, had gotten it out of Adam that they had... Pauline and he had had sex, so they broke up. And so then you've got just this kind of antagonistic thing between Pauline and the Mean Girls, too. Yeah. And it's interesting because with those scenes, there's a ton of comedy. And you're right, she usually gets the upper hand verbally in the Mm -hmm. situations. And pretty much anyone she's dealing with, whether they're an adult or not. But then there are these scenes that, to me, honestly felt a little out of place, where she seems very affected by her mother's opinion of her. Uh, I think one of the first times it happens, and her mother and her have been having spats through this whole right. movie, usually over the dinner table, because right. there are like 20 dinner table scenes yeah. in this movie, and they all look the same, mm-hmm. and they all pretty much play out the same. Mm-hmm. It's very monotonous in, in that way. It must have been after one of these dinner table spats that um, the mother goes into the room with her husband and just says, uh, I don't know, it's just impossible to love her. Right. I, I've tried and tried, but she's disturbed, and it's just... She's impossible to love. And Pauline hears this and it you can tell, I mean, it's, she's by herself, you know, she's eavesdropping uh, and she does, she breaks out in tears. Um, and it's a sad, I mean, if you think about the whole circumstance, it's, it's sad. And this movie's extreme. It's a horror movie, but underlying it, there are some, I think, real relationship issues. You know, I think there is a big disconnect between teenagers and their parents. Mm -hmm. You know, we've, we've been there as much as teenagers and probably parents too, but as much as teenagers like to pretend like nothing phases them, they can be hurt. Yeah. And, and, you know, she plays that nothing, you know, everything rolls off my back, but you see in privacy when her mom says something 
And I think that when this happened, I don't remember what instigated it. You know, they had been, like you said, they fight through the whole thing, um, but they're just sitting at the dinner table and uh, Pauline just grabs some food off of her plate and flings it at her mother. That's right. With no provocation with, mm-hmm. and with no explanation and she just gets up and goes. And that's kind of the last straw. To be fair, after that, the mom does try to reconnect with her. She tries to sit her down and say... I don't understand what's going on with you. I I just, I I can't understand it. She said, but, you know, when I was your age, my mother really hurt me, and I'm still trying to forgive her for that, and I don't want us to have that kind of relationship. As overbearing as she is, and as critical as she is, I got the sense, and the dad says this several times, you know, everything she does, she does out of love. And as twisted as her attempts are, Mm -hmm. I do think that she is, you know, she does care for both of her daughters. And I think that it does come from a place of love, but she's not a good mom. No. (laughs) You know, I think... I think you live long enough, you encounter people like this, Mm -hmm. who you know that they genuinely care, but they do it, they show their care in all the wrong ways. It usually comes across as, I'm trying to fix you, Mm -hmm. and I know what's best for you, and so here's what I'm going to say, and I'm just going to expect you to do it. And that's sort of the way she parents. Right. Is she thinks that she can just sort of dictate to this girl how to be, and point out all of her flaws so that she can fix them. And even in that scene that you're mentioning where she's trying to reconcile there is a huge disconnect still to where you can't really sympathize too much with the mom no. you know she starts out and she's kind of talking about it was a book that i read in book club that made me realize something about myself and then she's like when i you know i feel like i'm the only one in the book club whoever reads the books and you know, <laughs> she's still wrapped up in her own head yeah. more than she's trying to reach out to the girl and the girl sees right through it and, of course, is very standoffish with it. You you almost wondered if Mom had actually approached her in a very sincere manner, if her response would have been a little different? Well, maybe I think it would. I yeah. think maybe it would. And, and you get the sense that she is a product of... Yes, she's probably disturbed in some way. And maybe even the disturbance is a kind of uh, a product of her upbringing. You know, her mom wants to fit her into this very specific mold that she clearly doesn't fit into. Whereas, you know, Grace, despite the fact that she is ill, um, you know, potentially terminally ill, she's a very girly girl and and she's pretty and she has a very pretty pink room with doll houses and dolls. And, you know, she likes to look at bridal magazines and talk to boys. And, you know, she's kind of the mom's pride and joy. And then she's got this other kid who just is getting everything wrong. It's a little tomboyish. She wants to be a surgeon. Right. She she's just an odd dirt, an odd yeah. duck. You know, she's weird. <laughs> but something else that I was thinking of at one point, the mom says to Pauline, everything you do or the way that you act, the way that you behave makes you seem like a sociopath. Pauline says, well, based on the definition of sociopath, I think all teenagers are sociopaths, which in a way is kind of true. <laughs> um, but it, it kind of made me wonder because part of, you know, and I'm no psychiatrist, so I, I'm speak, I'm just talking out my ass. But from what I understand, part of that, you know, part of being a sociopath is is complete egocentricity. Yes. And um, you kind of see that in the mom yeah. a little bit, too. You know, she may have kind of some tendencies as well. Yeah, the apple doesn't fall far mm-hmm. from the tree there. It's interesting that she never reaches that point of jealousy with her sister to where she hates her sister, Mm-mm. you know? And, and that's an interesting touch to this movie. I would have expected, and I was expecting early on, a, a kind of animosity towards her sister and the fact that she is treated so differently, which 
obviously is possibly a function of her disease. Right. You know, she's the one that we baby and take care of that we're proud of. But she still has a very good relationship with her, which comes into play pretty important, you know, later on. Right. And another thing that we haven't mentioned, and and this comes from very early in the movie and is consistent throughout. In addition to those dream sequences, we also have sequences where she's praying. And the first time uh, that she, you know, and it, it looks like she's kneeling somewhere, the entire background is black and she's entirely clad in black. So it almost looks like a floating head and arms. Um, and, and she's kind of praying. And the first time she says, I know I don't believe in you. So you're totally justified if you choose to ignore me. I just, I've been meaning to get something off my chest. I haven't read your book in its entirety. Just can't bring myself to invest that much time into a work of literature that's received so many mixed reviews. I'm an avid reader. There's just so much stuff out there. Okay, here goes. I'm planning on having premarital sex. I know you're not going to be 100% on board with it, which is why I was wondering if we could discuss your rules surrounding forgiveness. I'm under the impression if I ask you to forgive me, you kind of have to, which is it's pretty awesome. I'm just gonna say. If I'm off base, let me know. Otherwise, I'm gonna move forward as planned. Amen. <laughs> so she has these kind of direct conversations with God where she really talks about her feelings and what she's going through. She vents her frustrations. And those are really interesting and I think reveal a lot about her character. And by the end, she concedes. I guess I do really believe in you now. Yeah, um, there's a transformation. There's a clear... Right. Pr- probably the only clear transformation that's happening, honestly, throughout the, this whole movie, every character is pretty much in stasis. I, I just don't see a lot of development, a lot mm-hmm. of change in any of them, except in her, really, and even her, not so much. Well, her change, it, it's it's kind of subtle, and it's deteriorative. I mean, she, yeah. you know, she she falls into her psychosis. And I think part of that is just because she has nobody to connect to. She has nobody to talk to. Eventually the parents concede, we'll take you to an actual psychiatrist, but we can't get you in until next week. So can you please just try to be normal until then? Um, And unfortunately she's not able to, Um, but you know, in her prayers, I I just found her prayer so interesting and funny. Um, There was one uh, where she says, I'm not really a big fan of that whole, your dead relatives looking down on you. Um, She said, if I do get, she said, I do some pretty weird things during the day and I would really appreciate my privacy. I don't mean to be presumptuous, but if I do get into heaven and my relatives have been watching over me, a lot of relationships are probably going to be compromised. <laughs> oh, God, and it's just, it's so funny, and it's... It's its something we could all say. Right, right, absolutely. Um, and it's, it's nice to get those scenes where she's speaking honestly because she's so closed off all the rest of the time. Mm. She's hard to read. Yeah, it's really the filmmaker's way of giving you a window into her mind beyond just the soundless, um, weird. It's a, honestly, it's a good counterbalance to all the weirdness that you get of her fantasies. Mm-hmm. If it didn't have this honest heart to heart with God type moments of prayer, you wouldn't get that. I don't know. You, it, she'd be harder to relate to. She and she is hard to relate to. But I did find myself 
feeling sympathetic towards her. Mm -hmm. She's so strange. And, you know, her fascination with surgery uh, continues on at at some point. And this is getting towards the end of the movie, and you know it's not a good sign. You know, she (laughs) she finds a dead bird, um, and she stashes it away in her bag and takes it home. And she says to it, don't make me regret saving your life or something like that. This bird is obviously dead. You know, I don't know what she's thinking, but she, she cuts into it and starts pulling things out and then says, oh guess it was too late and you know she and she's examining the innards at one point she licks the blood off of her fingers you can tell that she's coming unhinged yeah she's really slipping into her fantasies essentially and that comes about not long after the point in which the doctors deliver some news to the phyllis the mother that her sister is going to need uh, lung transplant ASAP. Right. They, and they've known that that was probably going to be a likelihood, but they didn't expect it so soon. Um, and cystic fibrosis is a terrible disease. Mm-hmm. And it's really debilitating. And the bond is established between the sisters. And she says, Pauline says several times to herself, to her sister, to her parents, I'm going to do everything in my, uh, you know, everything I can possibly do to make sure that she's going to be okay. And she really does seem to be concerned about her sister's well-being. And she, you know, they have little heart-to-hearts and they're sweet. You know, the sister's looking at a bridal magazine and Pauline says, you know, what are you looking at? Oh, just pictures, you know, just in case maybe I live enough to get married someday. And Pauline says, I'm going to do everything I can to ensure that that happens. Uh, And you can tell that she really does desperately want to help in whatever way she can, which, like you said, may be the whole motivation behind her fascination with medicine and surgery anyway mm-hmm. <clears throat> and that scene in particular is the one where i could see the ending coming i you know, know. <laughs> i know it's kind of it's really quite sad it is and like you almost <laughs> i almost wanted to turn it off like nope nope <laughs> 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 let's just pretend that's not going to happen yeah um, it, it is predictable what happens is you know i and i can't remember it, it is i think it's ignited by her again she's eavesdropping she overhears her parents talking about how uh, grace is going to need the transplant and she sets a plan into motion first at another dinner table scene she tries to ease her parents mind she says i just want to say thank you for putting up with me i know it's been weird she's gotten expelled from school because the mean girls uh have come and vandalized her house spray painted slut and pauline is a cunt spelled with a k then crossed out and corrected with a c (laughs) toilet papered and when that happens she goes to school in a scene that i found so amusing she's like marching into school her arms are swinging like an ape and and she's just slow-mo she's pushing people out of the way and she finally gets to Natalie and she just grabs her by the hair and smashes her face in the locker. And so she gets expelled by the principal, Principal Campbell, Ray Wise, who's another excellent you know, <laughs> genre actor who he I really is. love. And uh, so she, she tells her parents, you know, I'm sorry. I, I know I messed up, but I'm going to get my life back on track. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to make I'm going to make things happen. Um, So she kind of eases their mind a little bit. But, and in the moment, I didn't know if she was being sincere or not. Mm. Um, But it becomes pretty clear that she's not. In in one of her other talks with God, she says, thank you for giving me the strength and the intellect to be able to do great things. Yeah. Um, She says something like, get my parents out of the way or something like that. She said, except, but I've kind of already gotten that taken care of. Like she's eased them into a false sense of security. It's forecast pretty well. You you know which direction it's going when these scenes 
and it should be a warning sign <laughs> to all parents who have a dis- troubled or disturbed kid when suddenly their behavior makes a 180 right. degree change. It's right. not necessarily something you want to uh, right. rejoice over. It's a little over. suspect. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, so there's been this girl across the street who's one of the Jump taunters. rope girl. <laughs> Jump rope girl, which is kind of silly. Honestly, this is one of the sillier points in the movie. And again, it is a comedy, but... At one point earlier in the film, she comes over to raise... She's raising money for her jump rope club. Yeah. <laughs> We've got Cotillion and Jump Rope Club all right. in the same movie. It's kind of weird. But uh, she decides she wants to make amends... Or she claims she wants to make amends with her, too. And says, hey, I've got I've got some old jump ropes out back. Right. And before that, um, the mom and the dad were going to go to dinner. Oh, yeah, that's right. Um, and they were going to have a babysitter, which, of course, upset... Uh, Pauline, because she's 18, you know, she's, she's grown, but they need someone responsible, right? They need someone responsible. And the mom makes sure to point that out. The babysitter cancels. So Mm. the mom is going to go out by herself, I guess. And the dad's supposed to stay home. And, um, Pauline makes her and her dad some tea and you see her drugging it. So, you know, I mean, you know what's coming. Um, so the dad's drug, then she lures the jump rope girl over chloroforms her, I guess. I don't know where she's getting this stuff. all this stuff is it from her chemistry yeah, who knows who knows who knows yeah chloroforms her and then goes up and has this kind of heart-wrenching scene with her sister where they're sitting there and um, grace is coloring you know how did you think grace is supposed to be like 14 maybe 15 i guess yeah. i mean ariel winter's older than that yeah and looks older than that but it, she was playing it young and i i thought maybe she was maybe supposed to be 14 or 15, but because of the way she's been treated, because she is so fragile, she's... She's younger. Yeah. It could be. I, I almost imagined her the, you know, later into middle school, maybe. Maybe. Yeah, so around that age. But my point with that was, you know, this is this scene that we then cut to is the two of them, Pauline and Grace, sitting on the floor in Grace's room, which is, you know, this pretty little girl's room, and Grace is coloring. She's like coloring bubble letters of her name it's very sweet and innocent and pauline is kind of stroking her hair and says you're not going to understand what i'm about to do but someday you'll thank me yeah she chloroforms her and then you get. And the, it really. I mean, it's it, there's a struggle, and and Grace is is screaming and crying, and it's so sad because yeah. you know that Pauline really, really does want to help, and in her broken mind, she thinks that she's doing something to save her sister, and you know it's not. You, you, no. There's no possible way it can work <laughs> out. There's just absolutely. It's it's impossible. We've seen her surgical skills. Right. Uh, they're nothing like uh, the guy in. Um, deadly friend let's put it that right right yeah so it becomes this back and forth that actually reminded me a little bit of american beauty yes Uh, a little bit of that feeling of uh horror and suburbia yeah sort of sad tragedy that goes wrong where she has hauled them both into the garage and laid them both onto tables and is cutting the lungs out of one to put him to Mm -hmm. the other and they're both clearly dead right um at this point there's blood everywhere. I mean, there's blood. Their eyes are open. The blood, blood's coming from their mouths. Before before the surgery, we get a really brief scene of Pauline chopping all of her hair off in yes. the mirror. Um, so then you've got when we see what we know is coming, and we so desperately want it not to be. Again, it's just framed in this in this central shot with 
a table with these girls laid out on either side of, of Pauline, uh, who's standing in between them, bald in what looks like, like a lab coat or, or yeah. something. I mean, again, very clinical, very, except for all the blood everywhere, almost kind of this sterile scene. And it, it is reminiscent of her flash, you know, yes, of her, of her, her, mm-hmm, of her dreams. Yeah. And her mom, at the meantime, is coming home and discovers that dad's been drugged and tied up and looks in the room and it just goes back and forth. And finally, mom shows up in there and just looks at her like, what have you done? And she says, look, you you wouldn't imagine how you've got to come and check out what I did, mom. It's it's, you know, the first girl I wasn't sure. So I decided to, to do what to do with the body. So I practiced my sutures on her first and she's just crying and she they embrace and. And then Pauline herself kind of starts crying. Right. It it seems like she's almost been in some sort of trance Mm -hmm. state through, you know, throughout this whole procedure. And her mother, when she sees what's, I mean, she says, what have you done? And then she kind of lunges at her and I expected it to be an attack, like violent. And I think that's kind of how it starts out a little bit. I think she pounds on her just a little bit before grabbing her and embracing her and holding her tight to her. And sobbing, and at that in that moment, then Pauline begins to cry and sob too. I mean, it's almost as though the realization of what she has done has, has hit has, her. Yeah, yeah. And so they they embrace, and both of them are sobbing and screaming, and that's it. Yeah, it's the end. Fade to black. Yeah, and honestly, I thought it was really emotional. I thought it was touching. It would have touched me more. It would have been more emotional for me if the film had been played in a less detached way. Mm-hmm. I understand what he, the director was trying to do. Again, I, like I said, I felt like he was deliberately going for this balance between P.T. Anderson and Wes Anderson. But for me, it was so detached that I had a hard time getting really emotionally invested in the movie. Again, I, I'm comparing it a little bit to American Beauty mm-hmm. because it felt like it had a similar tone, even though they're not the same film. Oh, right. And I was so much more invested in the characters in American Beauty, I felt, so that when that ending happened... It just ripped me out. Um, whereas in this case, and, and that, very similar. Honestly, you've got, instead of the, the girl kind of slipping into her fantasy world and having this sort of psychosis, it's the father, mm-hmm. you know? And then, I don't know. I, that would be my criticism of the film, is that it was funny and it was staged, but everything was so deliberate and so deliberately funny and so detached that I had a hard time engaging as a viewer. I can totally understand that. And I think that the style that it was shot in, and maybe just, you know, maybe there was some lacking character development because, like you said, there's really no progression of character. It's just we're introduced to these characters and they pretty much stay the same. But I didn't feel the same way. Now, mm-hmm. I don't know if I would say that I liked this movie, but it it was kind of gut-wrenching for me. I felt for Pauline. I wanted her to get help. I knew she wasn't going to. You know, I knew what kind of movie this was going to be as soon as we got into it, you know, you get five minutes in and you, you know what kind of movie this is going to be. It kind of reminded me of, um, May. Did you ever see that movie? No. Oh gosh. I wish I could remember who directed. I won't be able to. Um, but again, it's a girl who's kind of obsessed with an outcast and she has no friends. So she starts, (laughs) she builds one, uh, out of, out of human parts. Wow. Um, and, and that, it just kind of reminded me of that. I felt for her and the end was gut wrenching gut-wrenching for me because I believed that she was doing what she was doing 
out of love yeah. for this one person that she had a connection with, the only person that she had a connection with. And Ariel Winter plays Grace so sweet and likable and vulnerable and sad anyway because she's sick and you know that she probably doesn't have um, a long life ahead of her. You know, she makes an attempt to be friendly with her sister. She's, you know, when when um, Jump Rope Girl says something <laughs> really snotty to her sister, uh, Grace says, don't be mean to my sister. Yeah. And, like, pulls her inside. And so I knew what was going to happen, and I just, I thought it was tragic and sad, and it, and it, it depressed me. <laughs> yeah. This isn't one you're going to walk away from going, yeah, that was quite a movie. This is one you walk away from going, oh, geez, the world sucks. Yeah, well, and, and even... <laughs> You know, had the mom just freaked out and and slapped Pauline again, she slapped her earlier in the movie. But the fact that, you know, she sees this just horrible, horrible scene, her daughter just, you know, mutilated by her other daughter, but that her response is to embrace Pauline. It's almost like she's seeing Pauline for the first time. Right. You know, she's really now it, it took this. Right. To get through to her how deeply disturbed she is and how much more in need of, of real help well, know, she and, was. And, and her there, inability to help her. Yeah, and they're beyond the point of no return. I At mean, that point, yeah. It, it, everything is destroyed. It's, a, it, it's sad. It's a Greek tragedy. It is. It really is. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's terrible. I don't know. What, what was your opinion overall? You know, I was impressed that this movie got made. Uh, it is an odd film, and I think it probably read better. Even better. Let me put it that way. I think it read even better on paper, probably, than, to my opinion, it came out on screen. This is a director's first film. He's done two more since then. This was based on a short, which I assume he used the short to shop it around. Mm -hmm. And he was able to convince a lot of really A-list people or, you know, lower A-list people to get in on this. I know. We haven't even mentioned them all. I mean, uh... The guidance counselor was Marley Matlin, mm-hmm. right? Malcolm McDowell was the math teacher. Oh, my gosh. <clears throat> so many. You know, we talked about John Waters and all of the others. So many good people. So people clearly must have had some faith in it. As a first film for anybody, it's pretty impressive. Yes. I mean, it's impressive in every way. And I think that we're probably going to see really good things from this director. Uh, and maybe, in my opinion, when the director sort of finds his own voice mm-hmm. instead of trying to copy or mimic a certain style. But that's what you have to do. You start out with everything you do, you're mimicking until you find your own voice. I think this is promising. It shows that this guy's got got somewhere to go. See, and that's funny because I was going to say almost just the opposite. I was going to say what I liked about it. And it was it's a kind of a hard movie to watch. Mm-hmm. There, are, there are funny parts. Like, there's some, so many funny lines that I wrote down that we didn't get to. But she, <laughs> at one point in a dinner scene, Pauline just says, out of, apropos of nothing, I'm going to get married someday to a black guy. <laughs> and, and her mom, Tracy Lawrence, just said, well, then I hope you're prepared to be cheated on because African-Americans are notoriously adulterous. Like, just... <laughs> and then, like, the husband gives her a look. It's like, well, they are. I mean, just silly little one-liners like that. So there is some humor in it. It made me laugh. But what I really liked about it was how different it was from other things that I've seen. You know, mm. I so appreciate, especially in the horror genre where we have so many remakes and so many sequels and so many copycat movies, which I watch and enjoy oh, too, yeah. but I just so appreciate when you see something original. You know, this is, a, I don't know, I you know, there's, there's like body horror stuff out there and um, mutilation type stuff, but this struck me as being a really unique film. It is for a horror film. 
You're absolutely right. But do you think it's unique for, I mean, if you expand that out? Because you're right. You're absolutely right. This is a very original horror film. But again, like I said, I, I, I can think of other non-horror films that I would relate it to. And in some sense, I don't know, do you even, would you even categorize this as straight horror? Because of the level of gore, mm-hmm. I would. Okay. But it's it's really, because it is really gory. It is. Really gory. Well, um, and for you to be disturbed by the yeah, level of gore in here, I mean, that is saying something. Yeah, we, we, <laughs> we took a break after we watched it, and uh, Todd's wife was cooking dinner, and um, I said, she's not a, a big fan of the genre, especially violent stuff. And I, I said, Bick, I don't think this would be one that you would have liked. And uh, I don't remember what she said, but I said it was pretty gory. And she said, as bad as Saw. And I had to pause because mm. it's not the same kind no. of graphic violence, but it may be as bloody, if not bloodier, oh, than, probably bloodier. than the Saw movies. Well, yeah, especially since, you know, when we rewatched Saw, we were kind of amazed at how they weren't mm-hmm. quite that bloody. Um, but... But maybe it's the clinicalness of it. You know, it's one thing to see the gore and stuff when you're expecting it. Somebody gets hacked and slashed in the woods and whatnot. But it's another thing in a situation where people are being operated on. Yeah. People are being sliced open in a, in, in a clean environment, atmosphere, very deliberately. You can maybe relate to it more. I suppose. It, it, but... Maybe it taps deep down into those those feelings that you get where, you know, when you go into a hospital, this is what you don't want to happen. Right. Well, and it's it's very fantastical, too. I mean, it's gory, but it's it's like fantasy it's gore. It's over the top. It's an inordinate amount of blood. Yeah. You know, there, there, <laughs> there wouldn't be that much blood in a person. Um, and it's done, you know, with, with, with some slow-mo, with some interesting lighting choices in the fantasies. It has an artistry to it that is not typical of your typical horror movie. Right. It seems like this director had a strong vision, and and I thought he executed it pretty well. Mm. Uh, I, I, I was actually pretty impressed. I don't know who I would recommend this to. It's an yeah. odd sort of movie. It's not... It's not a date movie. <laughs> it's not a. It's not unless not, you're trying to end the engagement. I guess it's it's not really a popcorn flick. No, it's I don't know. It's, it's a bit weird. of an ordeal. Yeah, but it is buttressed by the humor in it, and there's right. and you know we probably we've been talking so much about the tragedy, and you've mentioned, but there is at least as much humor in this film mm-hmm. as there is you know, gross stuff. Particularly in the first half. It kind of dwindles a little bit mm. in the second half as it, as things get a little bit more ominous. But there is quite a lot. And we were laughing out loud pretty yeah. regularly. Yeah, I mean, I think bottom line, I wouldn't watch it again because I wouldn't want to put myself through it again. Uh, I, I got everything I feel like I needed to get out of this movie and I feel like I got everything that maybe there is to get out of this movie. But I enjoyed watching it. I was glad we watched it. Mm-hmm. And uh, it I don't know, it was maybe the right movie for me to see tonight when I really wasn't in the mood for something just super intense action going all the time. Um, Unreal, you know? Yeah, I, again, it's hard to say. It's hard to say I liked it because it's such an odd movie, but I think that I might watch it again. Um, Give it some time. (laughs) I I, I definitely need some time to kind of digest and let my stomach settle a little bit. But, you know, years down the road, if it popped up again, I might give it a second viewing. It's I I almost feel like it merits it Mm. um, for me. And and I may be wrong. I might watch it again and say he was trying too hard. Uh (laughs) But for on first viewing, that's not the impression I got. Yeah. You got to trust your instincts there. You got to trust that. Well, I think the movie itself was pretty well received overall. 
Um, I think on Rotten Tomatoes, it's fairly high ranked. I think the reviews were quite good, you know, kind of in the B, B plus range mm-hmm. uh, from people. So, and that surprises me, actually. I would think that a movie like this would divide people yes. a lot more. Mm-hmm. So I'm surprised it's been as well received. What I'm shocked by is that I really hadn't heard of right. it. Right, I know. I, I'm surprised, too. And I had heard of it, but only very little. And especially with the cast, you would have thought, <laughs> you would have thought based on that alone, that it would have gotten more attention and publicity. But whatever, it didn't. And <laughs> now we get to watch it and talk about it. Yeah, <clears throat> I, bet our, I bet our listeners would probably appreciate it. Well, it, I think it's worth seeking out. I mean, if you're looking for, for something different, it is a different type of movie. You might hate it. That's the thing. Like, I would be kind of resistant to to recommending it to a, a wide audience because I think, like you said, I think it would be really polarizing. I think some people are going to appreciate it for what it is and some people are going to think it's gross and stupid. I'm on the appreciative side. Yeah. I think I am too. Thank you again for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please like our page on Facebook, share it with a friend. You can find us on iTunes or Stitcher. Please subscribe to us in one of those places and leave a comment for us. We'd love to hear what you think. Until next week, this is Todd and Craig with Two Guys in a Chainsaw. Ah.